back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of Algorithms to Live By by Brian Christian and Tom Griffiths, The Computer Science of Human Decisions. There's a whole bunch of problems that we face in our everyday lives. And the problem really boils down to that we've got finite resources and infinite amount of things that we want to do. So what should we do? What should we leave undone? What should we do today? What should we leave till next week? Uh, How much mess and randomness should we embrace versus how much cleanliness and orderliness should we have in our lives? Um, There's all these questions that we've been grappling with that feel like really human sort of questions. They might sound very human, but they aren't necessarily. Because for more than half a century now, computer scientists have been grappling with these and in many cases solving these everyday problems that we think are so human, but the computer scientists' algorithms have also been solving. So, some of these computer uh, challenges are things like how much attention should we allocate for the process of a, for each task? Uh, how many tasks should a computer try to tackle at one time? What's the minimum amount of energy that they could spend to get uh, tasks done in the shortest possible time? How do you switch between tasks? Should it collect more data or should it take action based on the data it already has? These are all things that computers do that uh, computer scientists have programmed into them via algorithms. Everything you do is almost an algorithm, like say for us doing this podcast right now, our algorithm at the very start was just grab the book, read it, hit record, hit upload. Over time, the algorithm's been updating to the point now where it takes uh, reading the book, highlighting, doing notes, discussion beforehand, setting up the audio equipment, hitting record, and then so forth. Or another example is if you're just doing something as simple as Knitting a pattern on a jumper, that's an algorithm. Something you do often? Oh, I do it all the time. <laughs> yeah. You cook a meal when you follow a recipe, that's an algorithm. If you try to light a fire and you start with a bit of newspaper first and a bit of kindling and the small sticks and the big sticks and the big log, that's an algorithm. Uh, it talks about in the Stone Ages when they used to kill an antler and rip their horns off and make a tool, that was an algorithm. Um, thankfully, we're not quite so wild anymore. But there are all these algorithms that have really been part of human life since uh, the Stone Age. So, as we've been living our day-to-day lives, the PhDs and all the researchers and hardcore mathematicians, they've been solving a different kind of algorithm. And what we're doing in this book is taking all the lessons from that discipline and that world and seeing how it can be applied to our day-to-day lives. So, by thinking algorithmically about the world, learning about the fundamental structures of all the problems we face, about the properties of their solutions, we can all make better choices. Let's say you're in a car and you're looking to find a car park. You might be going to a meeting or the shopping center or the grocery store. And there's a lot of strategy involved here with about when to park the car. Like if you see one pretty early days, should you hit that vacant car park straight away? Or should you keep driving forward and hoping to find another one that's much closer to your destination with a smaller distance? Yeah, it's a tough uh, tough decision that you have to face a hell of a lot. There's another phenomenon in the US, uh, apparently it's called the turkey drop, which is an interesting name for it, but basically high school sweethearts, uh, nice a nice couple, they go away to their respective colleges and then their freshman year, they come back home for Thanksgiving, they meet up again, but then when they go back to college four days later, they're no longer a couple, they're going back as single people. So the problem that we're dealing with here is how do we know when we've found the one? How do you know when you've tested enough uh, different options out there for a long-term uh, relationship partner versus when do you commit to one? Another one for me more recently, I've been looking to buy a property with uh, Corey and the question is like how long do you just keep on searching for for the right house to buy? Do you see the first one that pops up and you go, oh shit, that looks pretty cool and you put it in, in an offer? 
which we actually did. <laughs> and it would have been a biggest mistake ever all the time it turned out because a mate told me that's that's an absolute <laughs> lemon. But at the same time, should we just keep on looking and looking at infants and before you pull the trigger on something you're trying to find? So all these uh, different types of questions are really uh, they really boil down to the same type of problem. How do you know when you've found something that's worth committing to versus when should you keep looking? And strangely enough, there's a very obvious, very simple, very mathematical answer. The answer is 37%. So mm. you should spend 37% of your time looking and then after that, that's when you make a decision. So it's a, it's a strange uh, number, but we're about to prove through mathematics that this is actually bang on, that 37% is the exact amount of time you should be looking. It's the optimal strategy, as a computer scientist would say. So computer science has found this strategy and it does apply directly to our day-to-day lives. So in the book, it does talk about the example of looking to buy an apartment and let's say if you've given yourself a month to find the right one. Using the 37% rule, this would mean you're going to spend the first 11 days on this apartment hunt just looking, leave the checkbook at home. You're just gathering data and information for these first 11 days in order to help you decide for the following 19 days. And then the same with uh, the relationship. Say if you give yourself, okay, let's say from age 18 is when you're going to start seriously looking for a long-term partner up to age 40, you want to have your search completed well and truly by then, you reckon. So, you say you've got this 22-year period, the first 37% is pure non-committal trial mode. So, basically, until you age 26.1 is just gathering data. So, what types of people out there, which ones click with you the most, what type of person do you want to spend the rest of your life with? The first 8.1 years is pure information gathering and pure calibrating and then pretty much from 26.1 onwards, that's when you start making commitments. So, uh, there was one one maths nerd from the book who started proposing to every girlfriend that he had after the age 26.1, got rejected a couple of times, but eventually he got the right, he got one to say yes. Well, let's say you're 2026. 20, how do you reckon that'll fly if, uh, on your dating apps? You say, hey, pure uh, information gathering phase, not looking. <laughs> to be honest, that's actually what happens quite a bit, especially the blokes out there. They say, look, I'm not looking to settle down. Yeah, exactly. Information gathering. I think the problem is blokes probably let that go on for too long. They don't switch to the, after the 37% period, they don't switch to start getting serious. They, they try to drag that out as long as possible. So, same with parking. Let's say you have, uh, your car park is 100 meters long, just theoretically. If you're looking for the optimal park, the first 37% should be all about data gathering. So, if you're driving along and every car park's vacant, then you can be pretty sure based on that first 37% of data, mm-hmm. you're going to find one much closer to the top of the store or if everything's full after that first 37% you're like all right I'm going to strike straight away if uh, if I see some lady you know pulling out her trolley and I'm just going to stalk <laughs> her uh, right to wherever she's she's driving exactly so this uh this 37% rule is mathematically uh provable and it, it boils down to a problem from all the way back in the 1960s uh, a mathematician named Martin Gardner he used to do a column in the in the scientific american where he used to put these recreational maths problems um, now i don't know what sort of person's doing recreational maths problems they find in the in the paper i must admit it probably could have been me i reckon in a different life if if i was in the 1960s i reckon i'd be doing recreational maths problems but he had this uh, problem called the secretary problem and so it's basically imagine you, you're trying to uh, interview a pool of candidates to be a secretary. Your goal is obviously to maximize your chances of hiring the single best person in the pool. Uh, it's it's going to be pretty hard to pick. Uh, the restraint here is that you can hire whoever you want and they're going to say yes. But if you say, if you interview them and then pass them by, you can't get them back. So really, you've got this one shot. You look at someone, you've got to choose do you want to hire them or do you not want to hire them? 
So there's two different ways you can fail here. You can stop too early, meaning you pull the trigger on the first person, meaning you know you're going to miss out on the people who come later. But at the same time, you might stop too late and you said no to all the superstars that have come before that point. Mm, exactly. So we want to find what's the optimal time to stop. Uh, and as we've said, it's 37% of the way through, but we'll explain that a little bit more. Uh, one thing you want to do is obviously you want to hire the best one you've seen so far. You don't want to interview five people and wish that uh, you had to grab one of the others because everyone else is a dud. You've got to obviously hire the best you've seen. But of course, the best you've seen is pretty limited because just by definition, the first person you interview is going to be the best, best. You've, ever, you've ever seen. The second person is you've got a 50-50 of them being the best you've ever seen. You don't know what's to come after that. So obviously, you can't hire the first best person. Uh, you might come up with all these, all these intuitive strategies like, oh, the, the fourth time I find the best person so far, I'll get them. Or you might think, oh, if I've had a drought, if I've had six duds in a row, the next best one that comes along, I'll grab them. They're sensible strategies, but they're not optimal. Yeah, if I think of Australian Idol, this is, this is going really <laughs> left the field. If you're a judge, yeah, if I think of The Voice, not Australian Idol, where the superstar stingers has to pick a team of 10 or something to go to the next round, they might get 10 superstars on the first day, but it'd be very silly of them to just pull the trigger straight away, right? Because they're going to have 10, all the spaces are filled up, and then all the other people they see on the, the other days, they won't be able to grab. At the same mm -hmm. time, if they just say no to everyone on the first day, mm -hmm. then they're going to miss the superstars then and then later down the track, they're going to have to just fill them up with duds. Yeah, very true. Do you reckon like uh, Boy George and Delta Goodrum, do you reckon they're using the optimal stopping 37% rule? Well, they should. Intuitive. <laughs> I think intuitively, uh, maybe, they are, yeah. maybe they are. Maybe they are. So, the, the rule here is the, the look then leap approach. So, basically, the, the looking... As we said, that's your data gathering stage. You've got to test out the field to calibrate your decision making and then after that, uh, you leap. So, let's, uh, we'll, let's dive into a little bit of maths. Uh, we, won't, we won't go too deep uh, but say if you've got two applicants for your job, uh, there's really only a 50-50% chance of picking the best one no matter who you go with. You can pick the first one, there's a 50% chance they're right. You can dismiss the first one, that means you have to pick the second one, you've got a 50% chance. There's nothing really you can do there. Uh, so it gets interesting once there's three candidates. Now, of course, just by picking randomly, you'd have a 33% chance of getting the best possible out of that group of three. But by using this look-then-leap approach, we can actually improve our odds to 50%. So we can, uh, we can improve our chances from 33% by guessing randomly to 50% by using this look-then-leap strategy. So at the very start, you've got no information about what a candidate is. But after the first candidate, you've got someone to compare the other two with. So you've got a little bit of information you can be using. So when the second one comes along, you know straight away she might be better or worse than the first. And you've also know you could, you've got another one coming down the line to, to choose from. Yeah, exactly. That second person gives you that perfect mix of agency and information. Obviously, the first person you pick, you've got no information. If you wait all the way to the end, you've got no agency because you're forced to pick the third one. So, the pivotal moment is the second candidate and that what you do with this second candidate determines uh, how you can improve your odds from 33% to 50%. And basically, the rule here is that so for the first uh, person... Bad luck, whoever went first, because you're not going to pick him um, at all because you've got no information, no matter how good they are. The second person, the rule here is if they're better than the first, hire her. Mm. If they're worse than the first, then dismiss them and just hope that the third one's going to be better. Absolutely. So, back to our The Voice example, let's say 
Delta Goodrum in Australia. She's read this book and you know this is going to be her strategy. The worst thing you could do is be one of the singers on day one mm. because she's not going to choose anyone on that first day. It's going to be all about information gathering. You probably want to be on the second day or the third day because with this strategy, then that is going to be the best way for her to pick people. So, this might be a bit hard to listen to, but uh, if you've got three candidates, there's six possible ways that they could be ranked from best to worst. Uh, so, one, two, three, one, three, two, two, one, three, two, three, one, three, one, two, three, two, one. So, uh, the first person that comes through the door, uh, there's a one in three chance that they're the best possible person. There's a one in three chance that they're better than both number two and number three, but we know just by uh, our look then leap rule, we're going to dismiss them entirely. So then if we have a look, okay, so if the second person is better than the first, we're going to hire them. So in two chances, so two in uh, 33% of the time, the second person is actually going to be the best person possible. The only time we can stuff this up is if we pick the second person because they're better than the first and it turns out the third person that we're not, we're not going to interview is better altogether. So there's only one other way we can stuff it up there. So it turns out that in three of the six chances, uh, we've picked the best possible person from this pool. So we've increased our odds from a 33% chance, a, a random guess, to a 50% chance by using this look then leap rule, optimizing both our information and our agency. So that's just another way of saying that with this look and leap approach, using the first one as information gathering and then choosing the best one after. And as you said there, it just proves out to be the best strategy of finding the best person. When, when you extrapolate this out, it gets the, the tree diagram of the different combinations of people gets massive, but it turns out that if you did this same map for four candidates, you got 24 options, uh, or if there's five candidates, you got 120 options, but it turns out that every time uh, the math boils down to the chance that you got to spend 37% of your time looking for someone, and then as soon as you've hit that 37% rate, uh, so as soon as you've interviewed and looked for 37% of the people, you pick the next best person that comes along. So if the say if you've got 100 candidates, you interview 37, anywhere from 38 onwards, the best person that's better than everybody else you've seen so far, you offer them the job. So then again, if you've got 100 applicants and you hired at random, say that's the worst strategy you could possibly do, that means you've got a 1% chance of hiring the best person. But now with this look then leap approach, the best possible percentage chance of getting the best person is with this. And what we land at is that magic 37% rule. Yes, you're going to be wrong 63% of the time, but this is the best possible approach to get the best outcome. It's a Friday night. Your stomach starts rumbling. You've knocked off from work for the week. Now it's what do you do with your Friday night? Do you go to the trusty Italian restaurant that is uh, one of your favorites that you know and love or do you head to that brand new Thai one down the road that just up opened up last week? Then the next question you got to face is, well, do you go with your best friend or do you go with that new colleague from work to try to get to know them better? And then after dinner, what do you do? Do you watch a movie? Uh, and if you watch a movie, do you watch one of your favorites or do you watch the new release? There's all these decisions that we got to make which really boil down to do we pick our favorite or do we try something new? Every day we're constantly forced to make this decision that differ on this dimension, whether it's new or sticking with our favorite ones, the, the tried and tested things we know all about. So we intuitively know that it's a balance between novelty and tradition, between the latest and the greatest, between taking a big risks or savoring what we love. There's always times where we want to have the best. We want to have the best meal, watch the best movie, listen to the best song, 
uh, read the best book. But of course, everything that you now view as the best was new at some point. Hmm. So you got to know that by you got to expand your horizons a little bit. You got to try something new because this could become your new best. Uh, so we know that intuitively, there's got to be some mix between the best and the new. But what is that optimal mix? Again, thankfully, uh, computers, they've worked it out. They've got the perfect mix of when do you try something new versus when do you stick with something that you love. The strategy that the computer scientists have come up is the explore or exploit strategy. So in English, the words explore and exploit come low with completely opposite connotations. So exploration, as it entails, is all about gathering information and exploitation is using the information you've found so far in order to get a good result. So obviously, exploitation, that just means doing our favorite things. A lot of the best things in life come from that. That's the the family get together over the big holiday or that's the the band playing the greatest hits in front of their loyal fans or that's the old couple who's been married for 50 years who dance to their favorite song. Some of the best moments in life comes from exploiting. But at the same time, whilst exploring can be risky because there's going to be a lot of crap, there's going to be a lot of boring stuff, you do need to explore from time to time so that you can add a new favorite thing to your list. Computer scientists frame this conundrum as the multi-armed bandit problem. And this is a bit of a spin on the one-armed bandit problem. So the one-armed version, let's say you've got Jim from the pub, the Tudor Inn, which me and Astro used to work at. So we're probably talking about a specific <laughs> yeah. dude here. And right, he's after a few pints. He goes every night to play the poker and he wants to find out what's the best machine. So every Friday night, he chooses a different one. Over time, he lands on... More chili. Do you ever more, play that one? Oh, love, absolutely love more chili. That's actually what I landed <laughs> on. I, I used to play pokies every Friday night after work a bit. And my, I, my dad did the same. He used to. He found one the the pink. There's like a pink cat one, mm. and I just remember it. Just I don't know how, but it seemed like every time he went there, he just hit yeah. the hit one of those mega jackpots. When yeah. I say mega, like eighty bucks or something. Not <laughs> not like the mega mega jackpots. Well, but it's, yeah. it's a bit of money back then. But that's that's the general idea. You you try out a few different ones, and then you land on the one that you think pays the most. And so, so uh, with this uh, multi-arm bandit, obviously, you need to spend a little bit of your time uh, exploring. So, that's what the, the computer science, t- like explore, you got to try a bunch of different ones. And once you find the one that you want, you got to exploit it. Uh, and that's obviously, you sit down to that machine and hope it pays out. Now, hopefully in life, our payout rates are better than the casino rates because either way, you're going to lose in the CAS. But uh, we want to find something that pays out more than it loses. But the problem comes with, okay, say you've tried out one uh, machine, you've pulled the the old arm 15 times for nine wins and six losses, so you've got a 60% strike rate. But then the one next week, you've only tried twice. So you've had one win, one loss, 50% strike rate, but you don't really know that much about it yet because you've only pulled it twice. So the, the question is, well, what do you do next? Do you go with that the trusty one that you know the data or do you got to try out that other brand new one to see what the data comes back as? So to fully answer this problem of the explore exploit balance is one crucial variable and this is the time you plan on staying sitting at that poker machine. So if your time is coming to a close, you're probably better playing it safe and just choosing the one where you've got the most certainty around. But if you've got a, bit, a fair bit of time up your sleeve, you're more incentivized to move around and gather more data. I guess this uh, one example is when I, I moved out of home uh, probably four or five years ago. 
moved out of the parents' home, moved to a new place. It was about an hour away, so it was brand new, hadn't been there before. And the first month I was there, I reckon I tried a, a different takeaway joint every single week uh, because I had no idea what was around. I had to really explore my options and test them all out. But then after a couple of years, more recently, we actually moved back home with our parents. So when we came to that final month that we were there, we actually had the same thing four times in a row just because it was our favorite one. So really what this Explore Exploit is saying is the interval when that time that you're going to be playing in the casino, uh, metaphorically, of course, is large then you're going to want to try out a whole bunch of different stuff. But when you're coming towards the end of your time, that's when you've got to start exploiting more and more. Well, for me, say my early 20s and my traveling adventures, before I really settled down on anything, went very wide in different countries. But luckily, through all that data, I found my favorite place to go to in the world, which is Lombok, Indonesia. I get to surf there, eat some very nice Nazi champers and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, after that gathering data, now we've just got an exploitation potential. There's one uh, interesting thing that they did. A, they did a study and found uh, Hollywood's tendency to do the old explore versus exploit. So in 1981, uh, of the top ten grossing films of that year, two of them were sequels. In 91, three of them were sequels. In 2001, five of them were sequels. In 2011, eight of the top ten films of that year were sequels. So obviously that they've uh, they reckon they've found what works and they're just starting to exploit, exploit, exploit. So you had like X Men Six, Fast and Furious Six, Scary Movie Five, Iron Man Three, Hangover Three, The Muppets Two, Bad Santa Two. They're just all these sequels that they figure. Well, okay, we've got something that works here. Let's just try it out the same old formula. Yeah, well, a lot of authors do the same thing like Jordan Peterson book coming out pretty soon that we'll be having on the podcast. He could do more explore and do an entirely new different topic, but instead he's gone the exploit route. So his first book was 12 Rules for Life and now he's just gone 12 More Rules. rules. (laughs) Pretty safe bet that the same people who love that book are going to buy it. Or another author, Annie Duke, which we'll be doing as well, I think at some stage, How to Decide. Very similar to thinking in bets. I'd say an author who is always exploring very successfully would be someone like Robert Greene. Mm. His books like Mastery, 48 Laws of Power, Laws of Human Nature, Seduction. He's got his own style, but they're all very different books. He could have easily done 48 Laws of Power and just exploited that I'm for the rest sure of his career. I'm pretty sure he said he did have offers to do you know, 48 Laws of Power Part 2, mm. which he could do. And I suppose the same as like uh, Seth Godin done 20 different books. He could quite easily do Purple Cow 2, The Dip 2, like mm. just do the variation of it and just cash in. Or one of your favorites... Brene Brown, she had, she did a different book that was very, very similar to just cash in uh, and exploit something that she'd previously explored. So this explore, exploit, we can all use in different contexts. So say for reading, looking to find new books, you might have an explore strategy. That might be listening to a podcast like ours. You might um, come across four or five different books that you're interested in over a week and seeing that as your exploring phase before you choose which book you prefer to exploit. Or the mega papa of just thinking, this would probably be be part of our marketing spiel for our uh, upcoming book, (laughs) The Shit They Never Taught You, because that is a phenomenal book for uh, explore strategy because there's so many different book recommendations you'll get in there. There's a little bit of exploitation in that you're learning along the way, but overall, it's a purely explore strategy and you're going to be able to exploit much better books and make better decisions because of it. It's a Monday morning, you have a blank schedule, but a long list of tasks that you need to uh, get into. And this list is a big jumbled mess. So how the hell are you going to get through it? 
Yeah, some tasks you can only start once others have been finished. So if you think of like you can't stack the dishwasher with the dirty dishes before you unstack the clean ones out of it or some things can't start until a certain time. So like you can't mow the lawn before 7 a.m. or the neighbors get pretty pissed off. Uh, Some have sharp deadlines. Some can be done whenever. Some are urgent but not important. Some are important but not urgent. So it's it's a real challenge to work out. How do we order this to-do list? We always manage some way to do it. But as a rule, most of us, we don't really have a well-thought-out optimal strategy of mm. doing this. So getting things done, I had a few things in there, but one of them was do anything that takes less than two minutes as soon as it comes to the mind because if you're double handling, it's probably going to take more than two minutes anyway, so there's inefficiency. Mm-hmm. Eat That Frog says start with the hardest and most uncomfortable stuff at the very start and then after you swallow the ugly frog, you get sexier and sexier frogs as you go down the track. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Or relative. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, the one thing, again, says that you should order them in like all your dominoes in like the order that which if you knock one over, that knocks then three or four more over after it. Obviously, these are all going to be in the book as well. Well, we're plugging the book, the shit they never tell you. <laughs> Might as well get the double plug in there as well. That uh, what we need to really do before we actually choose one of these systems. So all those books that we've done on the past of time management, they're all good systems. But before you actually pick which one of those, you need to determine your goals. So like any good computer scientist does, uh, when you're programming an AI, you want to know, well, what are the goals first? So one goal you can set as your strategy is minimizing maximum lateness or in another way of putting it, just minimizing overdueness. So as something goes overdue, you don't want it to be pushing too late. Mm. You don't want to have one task that becomes three weeks late. So you want to minimize uh, that overdueness of the most overdue task. And if that was your goal, then the optimal strategy for your to-do list would be to rank them via earliest due date. So that means that the first thing that's due, you got to do that first. The next thing that's due after that, you do that second. So that means that uh, you don't end up with one task that's three weeks overdue because you put it at the bottom of the list. So if your goal is to not have anything go really, really overdue, then you should sort them by earliest due date. So let's say you're in a restaurant, you're the waiter, and you see people based on the order they walked in the door. So if it takes one minute to see each person, the line is eight people long, the person who got there first and who has been waiting the longest should get seated first with this strategy. And the person at the end of the queue has been waiting the shortest, so they can wait longer without blowing out the maximum lateness. So in this case, you don't have the the VIP list. So if uh, Joe Biden rocks up and you've got Joe from the pub, Joe <laughs> Biden's got not getting any uh, any closer to the door any quicker. Joe from the pub in this sense is getting in straight away and you might be missing out on some big bucks, big tips from the from the big dog that you might actually lose if they they get pissed off and leave straight away. Okay, so that goal was to uh, minimize the, the task that is the most overdue. Another goal could be to minimize the number of tasks overdue. So uh, you don't want to have a whole bunch of things going overdue. So the example of this is if on the weekend you buy a whole bunch of fruits and veggies, uh, they've all got their own sort of due dates, I guess, the due date, of course, being when they go rotten. So you want to minimize the number of things that go rotten and minimize the number of things that you throw out. So the first goal of uh, the the maximum overdueness, so basically with the fruit and vegetable, once it goes overdue, once it goes rotten, it doesn't matter if it keeps getting rotten, you basically forget about it from there. So the strategy for this one is what's called Moore's algorithm. So it looks very similar to the previous one we did. You rank them in order of earliest due date. 
But once you see that that big pumpkin is about to be overdue and it's going to take you four more days to finish it all off, then you realize, okay, well, this one's about to be screwed, so I'm going to chuck that out already. Let's just start eating some of those mashed potatoes instead. So I'm effectively sacrificing one big thing to save four smaller things. So using this analogy as the one used before, you've got 10 people waiting, lining up to get in your restaurant. In this case, you might have the person number three starting to cringe in their face. You're like, all right, this person's hitting their overdue date and they're going to leave the line pretty soon. So you prioritize number three. Number one's pretty chilled. She can just wait out the front <laughs> for a bit longer. And then after three gets starts getting pissed off, you see seven being very, very impatient. Say, hey, number seven, come on through. You're getting angry. Obviously, this is going to have its. <laughs> that's, a, uh, that's a real shocker. It's going to have some uh, blind spots here, <laughs> yeah. like any strategy. Or another another one could be say so you've got the you got the family of ten, and then you've got five couples. So you could say to the family of ten, "Sorry, you're going to have to wait here. Let's get these five couples in." So then there's, you've got five lots of people that are happy. You've only got that one group that's overdue. Or if you think about it at work, say you've got uh, that one big report that's going to take you all week, and you've got six smaller tasks. That unfortunately, that big report's going to be very, very overdue by the time you finish those six smaller ones. But again, it comes down to your goals. Are you minimizing the amount that it's overdue or are you trying to minimize the number of tasks that go overdue? A different goal we could be setting in this context of scheduling is getting as much stuff done as quickly as possible. Because sometimes we neglect the due dates and just focus on volume and maximizing our output completely and ticking as much as we can off the list as much as possible. So if you, if you think about this, you might want to minimize the sum of completion time. So say you've got two different clients, got two different tasks, one takes four days, one takes one day. If you do the four-day one first, your first client's going to wait four days, the next client's going to wait five days, so the total waiting time was nine days. Or if you do it the other way around, you do the first one first, so they wait for one day, you do the four-day one second, they wait for five days, you've minimized the total waiting time down to six days. So if your goal is to minimize the completion times, basically do you do the quickest, easiest, shortest tasks first and leave the big, ugly frogs to the end. Or a different sub-goal under this strategy is just the putting out fires approach because from time to time, as we all know, a big fire just lands in your inbox and a super demanding client or your apprentice gets the hammer and just knocks his finger off as opposed to the nail. Oh, so all sorts of th- different things can happen here. But in any case, even though the fire takes longer to put out, this ramps up so far in importance that you need to get to it straight away. So the optimal strategy here is weighted completion times. So here you're combining shortest processing time and you also weigh it in terms of importance. So I think this is the best one we've We've, yeah. <laughs> uh, we've, we've come across yet. So over these two factors, you might have something that's uh, got 10 points in terms of importance. But in this case, you might have something that's extremely important but takes pretty long to do. You're probably going to be optimizing that for the something that's not important at all and takes no time to do. For sure. Um, one application of all these different things, trying to pick a different strategy based on what our goals are for scheduling. Uh, the book we did, Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey, Um, So there's really two ways that you can pay off your debts if you've got a lot of debts. So one, the optimal strategy in in the sense of paying as little interest as possible means you should pay the debt that has the highest interest rate first. Um, That's optimal if your goal is to pay as little interest as possible. But if your goal is less of a, a financial goal and more of a behavioral goal, you should actually pay off the smallest amount of debt first. So that's what Dave Ramsey recommends because if you pay off the little tiny $50 debt first and then the $150 debt next, 
even if the interest rates are insignificant, you're psychologically going to benefit because you've ticked those ones off the list. So it's less about uh, the size of the items on the list and more about just crossing off as many items as possible off your list. Whatever you're trying to do with lists, calendars, and finding the most optimal productivity strategy, it all boils down to firstly, consciously choosing what your goals are and then optimizing your strategies accordingly. So overall, that was a bit of a look into the world of computer science and mathematics and really how we apply some of those algorithms and those rules that computers have to our own lives to try to find the optimal strategies for whatever problems we face. 